Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Lord willing, God's already spoken to your heart just to know that, that God loves you. Amen? Amen? There is not a person that will hear my voice say that God does not love. And so if you're joining us online, we're glad you're here. Thank you so much for those of you who are in the room. Uh, we love you. As I mentioned last week, uh, if you want to stay connected with our church throughout the week, um, check any of the social media options and follow us on there. Uh, we've got encouragement, different things we put out, resources to try and help you in your faith journey. If you're just checking us out for the first time today, make sure you stop by the tent on your way out. Uh, we got a gift for you. I just want you to know that we love you. But today's message, Hebrews chapter 3. And so if you were with us last week, that's where we were, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Today's really part 2 of last week's message. And so if you weren't here last week, I'm so sorry. I'm glad you're here today, though. And uh, we're picking up. We were talking about endurance last week. So Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 7 is where we'll start today. Let me pray, and then we'll open up the Word. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your presence, for your Spirit, that in all of our sin and all of our unfaithfulness as a country, as the church, as individuals, that you have not forsaken us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. You discipline us. You call us back. Some of us have drifted. You call us back. Some of us forsake you in the sense that we know what you say to do, but we do other things. And God, will you be gracious and call us back today? We know that your word is useful for teaching and equipping us for everything you desire for us. I pray we'd walk in the plan you have for us as a church, as individuals, um, as a country. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I told you this is part two on endurance. Today, we're going to talk about the gifts that God gives us so we can continue in this race. If you were with us last week, I told you that I don't oftentimes get emotional watching a movie, but that last week I had watched a documentary. Yes, I'm a nerd. I watched a documentary, and I started crying in this documentary. And I told you a little bit why last week, but what it was, in case you weren't here, was there was this uh, race, it's called Desert Runners, that talks about perhaps the greatest endurance challenge of all endurance racers right now is to race four different deserts. 250K each race in one calendar year. And what this documentary does is it follows four different people that are trying to, trying to accomplish this. Spoiler alert, they don't all make it. Some of you watched it this week, I know that. You've DM'd me or text messaged me or written the office and telling me about different parts. And there was, a, as there was a character I didn't really talk about last week. Her name is Samantha. I didn't really like Samantha when the documentary started, to be honest with you, because she admits that her life is easy and she hasn't had that many challenges, and so she's going through this really difficult challenge that she's putting before herself. Now, I don't know if you've ever met somebody before where you didn't like them at first, but then eventually you're like, yeah. One of our elders, the first time I met with them, they actually said, we, I didn't really like you or our, the preaching at this church, and now he's an elder at our church, and so it's all right. It's okay. Sometimes that happens. Well, I'm watching this documentary, and I don't really like Sam. Um, she's 25 years old. She's trying to be the youngest person to ever do this, trying to be the first woman to ever do it. I wasn't against any of that. It was just because she didn't have that many struggles in her life. It's hard to identify with somebody like that. And so I'm watching, but the most intense scene in the whole documentary happens for her. She's got this obstacle, this test that happens. She's running in Egypt. It's the Sahara Desert. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the reason why that desert's amongst this, these races is because it's the hottest desert on earth. Sometimes the temperatures get up to 120 degrees, and they said in the documentary that they get sand dunes in the desert that can be as high as the Empire State Building. So can you imagine running a 250K? Oh, we just have to climb over this Empire State Building. Okay, we got this. And so it's challenging. She's out there running one day. She's got bags tied around her feet so sand doesn't get in her shoes. She's not running real fast. She's going through this thing. And she comes to a rest area. A rest area is just a spot where you can stop, take a break, and refill your water bottles if you'd like to. She decided not to stay at this rest area. Because the sun was so hot, she said, the faster I could get this race done, the sooner I could get out of the sun. It was like 110, 115 degrees that day. And so she takes off and she leaves without any other runners, which that's dangerous to run by yourself. Then the documentary is not following her through this. And so what it does is it pops up on the screen. It's rare to see other people on the trail. But then it says what happens is that Sam came across a guy who was on the trail. He grabbed her by the hand, pulled her into the bushes and tried to assault her but a motorcycle came up and scared that guy off and the assault didn't take place. So I told my wife that after the next morning. She's like, really? And I was like, no, that's really what happened to the thing. It was really she, I, and I said, the documentary didn't say, but by God's grace, this motorcycle came up and it didn't happen. But you can imagine how emotionally shaken she was. She's already worn out. Like just think about physically worn out, down to almost nothing, out in this heat, and then this happens. Probably one of her biggest fears. 
and so she quits. You've had a week to watch it, so if that's a spoiler, so sorry. <laughs> so she quits. She goes back to camp, and I got emotional when she called her dad. I don't know if it's because I have four daughters or what, but you don't hear her dad on the other end of the line. You just hear her answering questions. Yep, yep, that's what happened. No, I'm okay. It's okay, I'm okay. And I started saying to her, it's okay. It's okay. Like I was telling her, you could, there's no one, everyone in my house is asleep. No one's watching this with me, and I'm talking to the TV. I'm going, it's okay, you can quit, girl. It's, it's not, that race isn't that important. Like you can stop. Another spoiler alert. She gathers herself back together, and she tells the race officials, can you take me back out on the course to where I stop and let me go again? And she goes out there, and she finishes the race. One of the reasons why many endurance runners run is because they want to know what they're made of. They want to know what's inside. The Bible says that in this world you will have troubles. That's a promise. There are tests. In fact, some of you in a room this size probably have been tempted to quit on your faith, quit on Jesus, quit on the church in the last seven days since you heard a message on endurance. Those are tests. The tests come, the tests are difficult, and what the tests show you is what's going on on the inside. Last week when we were talking about endurance, I told you the by and the because of endurance. The by, how? How do we endure? By keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. But why? Why would we do it? What's the because? What's the reason for doing it? It's a life or death situation. That's why. Today we're going to talk about the resources God gives us, some gifts that God gives so you can keep going. If you've got your Bible, Hebrews chapter 3, uh, where we're going to be is uh, verse 7, Lord willing, all the way through verse 19. We didn't quite get there in the first service, but Hebrews 3, verse 7 through 19. I told you that the book of Hebrews, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, talks about perseverance, endurance, how to keep going. I gave you some verses last week that talk about this. Here's some new ones that aren't in our passage today. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured. So you've endured, the fact that you're here right now, the fact you're listening to this word, the fact that you're at church, the fact that you're watching online, you've made it through something. You've endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So you've done it before, you can keep going. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one, so this is a corporate command that we're responsible for each other, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness, that's one of the tests, one of the obstacles, springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral, another thing that can happen, or unholy like Esau. Really? Because Esau, I don't remember Esau with any women in the Old Testament. It was a bowl of soup. Same heart issue. He sold his birthright for a single meal. Or last week's passage, uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, Christ is faithful over all God's house, amen, as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast it's endurance, our confidence, and our boasting, and our hope. And then verse 7 says, therefore. So we know that verse 7 ties back to what we talked about in verses 1 through 6. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So verse seven, first word, therefore, knows we're tying back to verses one through six. For those of you who wanna dig deeper than what we'll even get into in this sermon, many Bible scholars believe that Hebrews chapter three is a commentary on an Old Testament passage you can find in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. It is a quotation of Psalm 95. And so those of you who want to study those passages to dig a little bit more deeper into this. But what's being said here today? Remember last week I told you the author of Hebrews started off in the first two chapters. He gives us a bunch of statements and commands, things about Jesus. He's greater than angels, greater than all power, greater than all glory, comparisons. But then in chapter three, he gives examples. And there's power and example. Last week was good example, verses 1 through 6. Jesus, Moses, they're both faithful. Be like Jesus and Moses. This week, verses 7 through 19, Israel, not faithful. Don't be like them. That's the summary. But what we see is not only are good examples powerful, and we see those all throughout the Bible, right? Like Joshua is going to become relevant as we unpack Numbers 13 and 14. There's a guy named Joshua in the Old Testament. He's born into slavery. Then he's faithful but because other people aren't faithful for 40 years, he has to pay for their unfaithfulness, yet he doesn't bow his knee to idolatry. 
He doesn't turn away from God. He holds fast to God's promises, even though he's paying for other people's unfaithfulness. Wow, that's endurance. Or Job. I don't know if you've heard of Job. There's a whole book about him in the Old Testament. Thousands of people have gotten comfort looking at Job's life. I think a lot of people just go, well, it's not as bad as that. (laughs) But in one day, he lost all of his kids, all of his businesses, and he had multiple. But he stays faithful. The New Testament comments on Job in the book of James, in James chapter 5 and verse 11, it says this, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained, another word for faithful, steadfast, You've heard of the steadfastness or the faithfulness of Job, so see how powerful examples can be? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful is to point us to God. And so there's good examples, Moses, Jesus, Paul, Job, you pick Jeremiah, there's lots of them. There's bad examples. Have you heard of Ananias and Sapphira? Yeah, Yeah, don't do that. That's bad. Peter is both a good and bad example in the Bible. He turns away from God, but he turns back. So you can turn back. Judas, bad example. He turns away, doesn't turn back. That's not good. And we see bad examples today, right? Like, I don't know what your parenting situation is like. I think we have a lot of issues in my house, and I think my kids are passive aggressive. Here's why. (laughs) My kids actually will text message me, those who have devices to be able to do that, videos of bad parents. (laughs) Does anybody else have that? Or are you just sitting there thinking, y'all, you are messed up. That is bad. And so my, this week, one of my daughters actually text messaged me a video of a mom in her minivan turning around yelling at the kids because they turned a light on in the back. <laughs> no one can identify, right? With that? Y'all, I thought that was illegal until this year because my mom told me that when I was a kid. We're going to get arrested. You're going to kill somebody. Like, all the, so I've done that, just so you know. That's my excuse for why I did it. My mom, she's the problem. <laughs> Probably my favorite bad example video uh, my kids have sent me was a video of myself (laughs) yelling at the wrong kid (laughs) because we were on a road trip. We had rented a minivan. We were on a road trip, and our youngest daughter, her name is Gracie, had started a fight with one of her siblings. I didn't know that. She started poking and prodding, and they actually hit them. And then when I turned around and looked, she fake cried, (laughs) to which I thought, she's the baby. One of y'all are messing with her. So I started yelling at the other kids, and then they showed me video evidence that Gracie actually started it. And I was like, oh man, can you imagine if when you were a kid they had video evidence? We had so much trouble. See, bad examples can teach too, right? And what we have in this passage is a bad example. The bad example is Israel. Here's a summary of what Israel does, maybe from a perspective you haven't considered before. You know, Jesus tells this parable when he's teaching one time about a stupid farmer. And you can look it up, just Google, stupid farmer in the Bible, and you'll find it. It's a farmer that's so dumb, he throws seed everywhere. What farmer does that? Like you're gonna spend money on fertilizer and tilling soil, but you're gonna throw seed on rocks and in thistles and on a pathway, but also on the good soil. And what Jesus is doing is teaching a parable about our hearts. And he says, there's seed that's thrown on the soil and it sprouts up right away, but Satan comes off and he, there's a spiritual battle for your soul. And some of it goes along thistles, there's difficulty in this life. And some of it goes into shallow soil and it, and it springs up, but then there's persecution that comes and there's the lure of wealth and there's the worries of life. And if you take that, that parable as a study, in other words, three quarters of people will start in a faith journey with Jesus and not finish. And what happens with Israel is that. They had faith. The whole blood on the doorpost so that my kids don't die, if God says so, sounds really weird, but we're gonna do it. Walk through on dry land, but those people are going to be destroyed. Okay, that's faith. Doesn't make sense. God said, I'm doing, but then they fail. Don't be like them. That's the summary of the passage. But in that, we also learn some resources God gives so that we're enabled to fulfill the command that he gives us. The first one is his word. God gives us his word. God's an incredible gift giver. Read Matthew chapter 7. talks about how God knows how to give good. If you as a sinful father know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more does our heavenly father know how to give good gifts? James, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every good thing that's happened in your life, it's come. It's been a gift from God. Whether you acknowledge it, see it, know it, it's still true. He tells us in 1 Peter, you have everything you need for life and godliness. And one of the big gifts that he gives is this book. He says it here in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit, and notice this is present tense, not said one time a long time ago about some people in the book of Numbers. As the Holy Spirit says, present tense, today, that's this day when you hear this. If you hear his voice, 
Here's what not to do. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing. Now he uses them as an example in the wilderness, but he's speaking to you. Now we saw when we started studying the book of Hebrews, remember, if you just go back to Hebrews chapter one, it talks about, it doesn't say like, so-and-so wrote this book, here's who it's written to, salutations, nice stuff, you're the saints, there's bad people here too, let's talk about them. No, it doesn't say that. Other New Testament books say that. It says God spoke in many ways, in many days. And if you read the Bible, he spoke through a donkey, he spoke through a burning bush, he's spoken through circumstances, he's spoken in dreams, he's spoken audibly, he's given impressions on the heart. Like he speaks a lot of different ways through prophets, through priests, through kings, through wicked people, through animals, through all kinds of stuff. And it says, and today he's speaking through his son. Okay, what is he saying? Well, then we spent two chapters just talking about who his son is, and now we're gonna get into he's speaking to us, what is he saying? Here's one of the encouraging things. He thought it was so important, he wrote it down. And think about that for a minute. Have you ever played the game Telephone? It's an icebreaker game. Uh, some of you are going to meet for your small groups, maybe a Super Bowl party. Maybe you meet on Tuesday or Wednesday. Nobody's watching the Super Bowl on Tuesday and Wednesday. So in your, maybe as your small group, you can play this icebreaker game. The way it works is you've got to have, you know, 5, 10, 15 people or so. And one person has a message. And they get in a circle or in a line. And then they tell it to the second person. And they whisper it to the third person. And they whisper it to the fourth person. And the fun part of the game is the last person has to tell everybody what the message is. And it's not the same. That's just how it works. I don't care what message you pick or any of that kind of stuff. It'll get messed up. Somehow they didn't hear right. It's not people trying. Sometimes people try to mess it up. God cares so much about us getting an accurate revelation of his word. And think about what his word is. 40 authors, 66 books over about 1,500 to 2,000 years on three continents with one story to reveal Jesus Christ. And it's unified, and he wanted you to have it. Pretty crazy. And it was so important, he decided to write it down. I remember when I did sales, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was if you, um, you don't, I didn't want to offend people by telling them I didn't trust them, but I learned if you just take people by their word, sometimes their word changes. <laughs> And so I just decided you trust everything we write down. And so we'll just write it down so everybody's clear about what the expectations are here. And so God's written it down for you. He wants to be clear. Now you can twist it and turn it, but he's written it to reveal himself to you. Now, so think about that for a second. This book's not, I mean, I can hold this book. God is infinite. He's writing about everything from creation to the beginning of the world till Jesus comes back, the end of the world, and he puts it in this book. Some people say, I don't know, I can't read the Bible, it's so big. There's some... Think about the economy of words that God uses for the Bible. Most English translations are about 750,000 words. <laughs> That's not that many, really. I read a blog this week by a guy named John Bloom, if you want to look it up. Here's a quote from that blog. He says this. He says, the inspired, authoritative, infallible, accumulated written record of the specific words God wanted us to read and remember over the course of 3,500 to 4,000 years, the definitive book to gather in and guide his people is tiny. Teeny, however you want to pronounce it. It's 66 books are brief. Some are only a few pages long. At a little over 750,000 words, most English versions of the Bible have less than 2,000 pages. To help put that number in perspective, here are rough estimates for several popular books or authors. William Shakespeare, 960,000 words. Harry Potter, 84,170 words. Karl Barth, Church Dogmatics, church guys know how to talk, 6 million words. The Bible, 750,000 words. <laughs> so Harry Potter, a story about a kid flying around on a broom, <laughs> over a million words. The God of the universe, 700, that's, that's pretty efficient. Different genres, poetry and narrative and story and history and end times, prophecy, like there's lots of stuff in here, but this is what God wanted you to know. And what does this passage say today? If, if today you hear his voice, listen, why? What he's saying is important. I jotted down as I was studying this week, just some things the Bible says about the Bible. Like what is it we're actually getting when we get into the word? And so think about this for a second. There's a story uh, where Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is in the wilderness. And so this pastor's talking about wilderness stuff. He's fasted for 40 days, which means he hasn't eaten. Satan says to him, turn these stones to bread, which he's fully capable of doing. 
Doesn't say what kind of bread. Could have been garlic toast. Could have been avocado toast. Could have been all kinds of bread. He can do whatever he wants. But instead, do you know what he says? Man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is background to this passage of Scripture. So what does that mean about the Bible? That means the Bible is life-giving and life-sustaining. I saw a picture two or three weeks ago when I was doing some research for an illustration for a different sermon. It's a famous uh, POW picture from World War II. I think we have a copy of it. It's been put in color. And what struck me about those men who've been in prison camp is how malnourished they are. Which just got me thinking, not judgmental toward any specific person, but I wonder if we could see our spiritual condition physically, how many of us would look malnourished. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. He's talking about himself as the good shepherd. John chapter 10 is also where we go for a famous promise that Jesus came that we could have life and have it abundantly, which got me thinking, how many of us want abundant life? All of us. But how many of us won't feast on abundant truth? A lot of us. But it's nourishment for our souls. It's life-giving and life-sustaining. But instead, some of us, we just want like a weekly stimulant or like steroids of our spiritual journey. And it's like, he's given us this book. And the Bible also says it's powerful. Just think about Genesis chapter 1. God spoke everything into existence. It said in Hebrews, a couple weeks ago, we were looking in chapter 1, that Jesus holds the universe together with the power of his word. We're going to see in chapter 4, it's like a two-edged sword that pierces our souls. And we're seeing today that he actually speaks through it today. Not just take something from a long time ago, put it into your context and talk about how it would apply. It says, today, the Holy Spirit says, present tense in our passage, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, today, If you hear, if you don't hear, we're going to talk about what that is, but if you hear his voice, so he's still speaking through it. And so he speaks through it in many ways. We're going through spiritual battles. If you don't sense that for us as a country and probably you individually, you're not seeing what's happening. The Bible is our only offensive weapon according to the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16 says this, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Things are coming at you. Take the helmet of salvation, you're a believer, remember the gospel truth, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's your offensive weapon. I don't know all of your stories, but if you're a follower of Christ, your faith journey began with this book, with the truth. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It comes from God's Word. It's a guide for our lives. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Some of you want to know. They call this the time period, the great resignation. Should I quit my job? Should I start another career? Should I do these things? And then what we want is some sign from God. If all the lights are green on my way to work today, I'll keep working here. Right? Like, or, or some kind of like something to happen. Like, who knows what it is? But like, if my appendix bursts, then I'm going to quit. Like, I don't know what you come up with. But you got some kind of thought process that God would just speak to me. And he's going, I have. I wrote it down. I was reading this morning in Luke chapter 16. Crazy story Jesus tells. Lots of truth to learn from it. But it's called the rich man and Lazarus. And what happens with the rich man and Lazarus is they both die. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. The one that's in hell is the rich guy. And he says to Jesus, uh, can you just tap your finger in a drop of water and touch my tongue so I can have some relief? Nope, that time has passed. So if anybody thinks, well, everybody ends up, that's not what the Bible says. And then he says, can you send him to go talk to my, not me, not so I can get some relief, it's not manipulative thing, can you send him to go to my brothers? I've got five brothers. Will you tell my brothers the truth so they don't end up where I'm at? Do you know what Jesus says? If they don't believe the Bible, Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe somebody who comes back from the dead. It's not about signs. God's spoken. It's not about clarity of what's being said. He's really clear. It's about, are you receiving the truth? And we'll talk about why not in just a minute. But it's powerful. It's a guide. I remember one of the first verses I was given when I became a follower of Christ because the guy who led me to Christ knows the struggles a young man have was Psalm 119. It's the path to purity. It says in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure or a young woman? By guarding your heart according to God's word. There are all kinds of trends, all kinds of talking points in the news, all kinds of agendas that come. But do you know about the Bible, Isaiah 48 verse 10? 
The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God remains. Amen? It's forever. And remember who it's coming from, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's God speaking to us. And it's profitable, it's useful for teaching and reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And here in our passage today, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not said, not once a long time ago, as he said today, if you hear his voice, listen, if you miss God's voice, you miss God's blessing. If you miss God's voice, you miss God's blessing. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever missed a blessing? Have you ever missed a blessing before? It's easy to look back on history and see how other people have missed blessings. Do y'all remember Blockbuster? How many of you remember Blockbuster? Be kind, rewind, remind, raise your hand if you remember Blockbuster. All right, percentage, a good percentage of you are over 40. Got it. We were manager there once or did the thing. Here's the deal. Did you know that Netflix tried to sell themselves to Blockbuster for $50 million? Blockbuster said no. Do you know what Blockbuster's worth today? They've got a Twitter account. They make fun of themselves. That's what they do. Netflix is worth over $200 billion. That's kind of a missed opportunity. I mentioned Harry Potter already. Do you know how many publishers rejected that book series? It's a $9 billion franchise now. Did you know there were three founders to Apple? Everybody knows Steve Jobs. A few people know that was, 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 however you say his name, name, the other guy. There was a third guy. He owned 10% of Apple. He sold his shares for $800. That would be worth over $200 billion today. Some people are calling the Super Bowl today the Crypto Bowl because there's going to be so many cryptocurrency commercials. One of the most famous stories about missing out on cryptocurrency is a guy who lost his hard drive that had 7,500 Bitcoin on it. One is worth $40,000 today. <laughs> yeah, that's a missed opportunity. Have you ever missed an opportunity? If you miss God's voice, you miss God's blessings. Let me ask the question a different way. Have you ever heard God speak to you and failed to obey? Then you've missed a blessing. That's what's happened here to the people in the wilderness that he's talking about. This is the bad example that he gives. He's talking about Israel. And so when he says here, uh, like your fathers in the wilderness and they tested me and they failed in the testing and it was their rebellion, what happened here? Here's what you need to see. The reason they didn't hear wasn't because God wasn't clear. It wasn't they didn't know the words. It was because of their heart. Did you see that? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, <laughs> and then it goes on and talks about why we would fail to hear. Day of testing, the rebellion, it's a hard heart. That's the problem. And that's what the tests of life get at. I told you about that documentary, The Runners. Uh, there was one guy, another spoiler, hey, you had a week, that's what it is. Um, his name was Ricky. Uh, Ricky, his dream was to be a professional baseball player, hurt his shoulder, he thought he was on the pathway to that, then he thought he was gonna be some other things, none of it worked out. And so he thought he'd become this endurance runner and he doesn't make it, long story short. He doesn't know why he can't complete the race. So they go back to his home and he's getting tested and he thinks, maybe I have an enlarged heart, maybe I have a problem. And he found out he didn't have a problem with his heart. So he can't figure out why he quit. Can I tell you something? Have you ever quit on your faith? I guarantee you it's a problem with your heart. Warren Wearsby says it like this, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And what happens in the tests of life, whether that's a divorce, whether that's a pandemic, whether that's a job thing that didn't work out for you, whether it's the death of somebody, in this world you'll have trouble. In the midst of those troubles is a test of your heart. Those things get at the heart. There's a test happening for the, the Israelites in the desert. It's getting at their heart in that moment. This week I had a guy come look at, the, at my deck in, the, in my backyard. It's got some rotten boards on it. There's actually a hole in the deck, but lumber prices are crazy, so I didn't want to fix it. And I called this guy and said, can you come give me a quote? Tell me how much it would cost to get these, just these boards replaced that are rotted on here. He comes over. He looks at the deck. He says, uh, you've got other problems. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know, but we're just talking about the deck. <laughs> he says, uh, see this? And he starts explaining stuff. He goes, we've got to go underneath the deck. So we get underneath the deck. He starts pointing stuff. Do you see that? I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm like, uh-huh, yep, okay. And he goes, I've got really bad news for you. You've got significant problems. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't know this was therapy. I thought we were just talking about the deck. And, and he's telling me this stuff. He goes, if we really want to see the problems, we've got to tear back this board because then we'll get beneath the surface. And that's what happens in life when you start to go through a test. You get beneath the surface of what's happening. 
Remember for the Israelites, they've put blood on the post. They've experienced the Passover. God's come through. God's done miracle after miracle after miracle. And all the miracles that God did, if you read the book of Exodus, the different miracles that took place, were showing that he's more powerful than the Egyptian gods. Then they're standing there at the Red Sea, and God says, don't, don't fight. Just wait. I'll fight for you. They wait. God shows up. On dry ground, they walk across. All the, all the Egyptians are wiped out. Then they go, and here's the, the kicker that sometimes we don't get when we're reading the Bible. It's been about three years since that Red Sea experience, and we're, we're quick to forget. And they're standing, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, they're standing at the edge of the greatest blessing they're ever going to experience in their life, the promised land. And Moses does what God tells him to do, grab a guy from every tribe and send him in here and spy it out. Now, here's the deal. A lot of times we get out of our lane, right? We start doing stuff we weren't supposed to do. Here's an example of that in the Bible. Their job wasn't to vote on what to do next. Their job was to give a report of the land God's about to give them. Stay in your lane, man. If you'd have just done that, we'd have been good. So they go, they spy it out. They come back. Ten of them think it's impossible to do because the people are stronger than them and they're taller than them. That's literally what the passage says. There's big fruit. It looks amazing. All they're supposed to do is come back and say, tell us about what God's going to give us. There's two guys, Caleb and Joshua, that say, yeah, what they're saying might be, they are big and they are strong. God's bigger. God's stronger. Amen? They're faithful. In fact, Joshua actually casts a vision to the whole congregation about what could be. Listen to what he says in, in Numbers chapter 14. Joshua standing before all the people. Verse 7, he says this. He said, to all the congregation of the people of Israel. So there's not just Moses and Aaron and a few spies. There's thousands upon thousands of people there. He says, the land which we pass through to spy it out, it's exceedingly good land. Okay, that sounds appealing. We don't have to go to the next property. This is an HGTV. This is a great place. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us. And we already know he delights in us. We're his people. We've been called by his name. He's given us all these promises, a land that flows with milk and honey. Everybody's probably excited about that. And then he gives a warning. Only do not rebel. Remember what Hebrews 3 says they did. They rebelled. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord, don't keep your eyes on our strength and what we, hey, these guys are right. They are bigger than us. They are stronger than us, but they're not bigger than God. The Lord is with us. Do not fear man, fear God. But they don't listen. And so what does Hebrews 3 tell us? They rebel. <laughs> what do you think of when you think of rebellion? Because I know what I think of, and it's not what I see in the Bible. When I think of rebellion, I think of Star Wars rebel forces, like we're again, we're going to show the man, we're going to take the big system, like stop it. Or the Boston Tea Party, right? Like we're Americans, jerky British, you know, we got this thing, no taxation without representation. Remember that from elementary school? Remember that? No, but just smile. That's fine. <laughs> or you think about truckers, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm not handling these mandates. I'm gonna or we're Protestants, by the way, we're, we protested. That's where even we came from as a, as a church movement. Uh, we're protesters by nature. And so you think of that, that's not what this says. Do you know what the rebellion is here? It's not a high-handed, God, you're wrong, we're right, I'm going to show you. It's a lack of belief. That's what the text says. It was their rebellion in unbelief. That's the bad example, Israel. I told you there's a lot of positive examples in the Bible too. Uh, one that I read about a couple weeks ago was a king named Josiah. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 22 if you want to read it on your own. But Josiah becomes a king when he's really young. There's no father figure to lead him in this process. Doesn't have mentors that are pointing him to God. In fact, the world's fallen apart. In fact, even the religious establishment of the time at the temple that's supposed to be representative of God's presence where people corporately gather and worship God and experience his presence and encourage one another has become an idol factory. They've lost God's word. And let me give you a warning, not from the scriptures, but do you know how that can happen in American church? We start going with the cultural talking points. We start doing, we're more informed by the media than we are by our good shepherd. And before you know it, the Bible's a launch pad to talk about our agendas, but it's not what we're going to. And so that's happened. They've lost God's word. But then this young king 
says, let's clean up the temple, like literally physically clean up the temple. It's a mess. And they find a copy of the scriptures. And he says, I want the priest to come and read the scriptures to me. And he's so humble. Here's a summary of what it says in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 22. Uh, hey, we're not doing that. Let's start doing that. What we're doing is not working. If this is what God says, let's try that. Crazy idea, huh? What allows that to happen is this, humility. If you want to hear from God, that requires humility from you. If you want to hear from God, that requires humility from you. Here's what it says in 2 Kings in God's word, the way that he wrote it. He says in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, because your heart was penitent, which means willing to turn to me, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes, that's a mark of humility, and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. You listened to me, and now I've heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, God's going to hold his wrath off on him. Listen to this. Behold, I'll gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. You've got peace with me, and your eyes will not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. Why? Because you heard me. How did you hear me? You humbled yourself. Do you know what the Bible says about the wilderness experience that the Israelites had for 40 years of wandering through there? It tells us why that happened. It tells us what was supposed to come of it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16 who fed you in the wilderness? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. With manna that your fathers didn't know. I made up food for you. you it didn't even exist, God's saying, that he might humble you and test you. Why? To do you good in the end. The discipline was ultimately for your benefit. Why? So you'd turn like Josiah did, like the Israelites did then. You'd turn. So let me ask you this question then. If you heard God say something to you that you had been neglecting, maybe you were ignorant of it, maybe you didn't know, maybe you were too proud at one point, how would you respond? And we can test that, right? Do you know it doesn't matter who you check? You can check Lifeway, you can check the Southern Baptists, you can check the Methodists, you can check the Nazarenes, the Presbyterians. Do you know how few Christians ever share their faith? It's ridiculous. It doesn't matter which stat you check. It's such a small minority. It's crazy. Have you ever made a disciple? This isn't some obscure command. This is not like I'm grabbing some verse and twisting it for some church agenda. Uh, you will be my witnesses. Go make disciples. Well, I don't know how, or I've never done that because I haven't had the opportunity. It's like, do you know Jesus tells you how to make disciples? You don't need a program. Uh, teach them to obey everything I've taught you. That's the plan. But I don't know that. But do you know anything? Everything he taught you, intentionally teach someone else. Now, you can decide what to do with that. If you've never made a disciple, you haven't obeyed, but now you've heard, if your heart is humble, you'll change. Maybe with your kids, maybe with a friend, maybe with a neighbor, someone in your small group. But if not, I just wanna know how to be happy. Okay, the Bible talks about that too. I'm gonna to tell you what it says, you decide how you respond. There's a sermon that Jesus preaches on happiness. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Stop listening to all your podcasts. Don't need to listen to me preach. Like, read Jesus' sermon. Matthew chapter 5. He says, here's how to be happy. Uh, the word in the Bible, oftentimes translated in the English, is blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. It means happy. Here's who the happy people are. Happy are the persecuted. Uh, I don't know, Jesus. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that. Okay, okay, that's true. At least you're being honest now. You don't believe it, which means you have a heart of unbelief, which reveals the test. It's not an issue of whether God's spoken. It's not even an issue of whether you've heard. It's an issue of humility. If my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face. We want revival in America. We want this country to change. We want the church. We've got all these problems with the church. Here's the deal. Revival doesn't happen with the people you're mad at on the news or the people in the White House, okay? You gotta be a Christian first. You can't revive what was never alive. Revival starts in the church. How will you respond? That's the question. He gives us his word. He's been really clear in his word. Are we hearing? But he didn't just give us his word. He gave us each other. He gives us each other. That's the second gift. Verse 12, take care. The King James says, take heed, heads up, 
Here we go. It's another way to translate that. Uh, message says, watch your step. So that's the Scott translation of heads up. Um, this is a warning. There's warnings all throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve get warnings. Uh, prophets give warnings. There's lots of warnings. Um, warnings are a sign of God's love. Warning's not judgment. A warning is not condemnation. A warning is a sign of God's love. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, contrast, exhort one another or encourage one another, some of your pastors say, every day as long as it's called today. There's that word again. That none of you, it's not just you individually, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So warnings all throughout the Bible. Hebrews is called a book of warnings. Read Hebrews chapter 5. There's a warning. Hebrews chapter 10, warning. Hebrews chapter 12, warning. We're going to get to all those warnings. But here we see a warning, and it's his love. I get a devotional on a weekly basis from a guy named Paul David Tripp. If you want it, you can go to his website, Paul David Tripp, and sign up for it. It's called Wednesday's Word. And he talked about a bunch of warnings through the Bible, and some of them from the Hebrews passage. And he said this. I thought this was such an insightful comment. He says, why are there so many warnings in Scripture? Because God loves us. And then he says, I love this. A warning isn't judgment. If all God intended to do was judge and condemn us, he wouldn't first warn us. He'd only judge and condemn. <laughs> but maybe you had good parents, and they told you, watch out on the road. Don't drink poison. Don't touch a hot stove. Why? It's not because they wanted you to be hurt. It's because they loved you. And here you're being warned. Being warned what? being warned to not let each other fall into sin. So this is a corporate warning here. This is, hey, this isn't just, hey, you don't fall into sin because sin is deceitful and we could get into that and talk about all that. It says, exhort one another. But in verse 12, I had talked about before that, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So you're responsible for each other, not just yourself. You're responsible for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and here's how you can protect them from having an evil, unbelieving heart that doesn't respond to God's word. Verse 13, but, contrast, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Can you imagine if this had happened in the book of Numbers? If instead of believing the guys that were going, they're big and they're strong, and everybody starts grumbling and complaining, and then they miss the blessing. If instead they'd have listened to the vision that Joshua cast, and Caleb was saying, and just a couple more of them maybe started saying, hey, remember what God did three years ago? And we didn't think he could do that, and he did that. Why don't we just see? Why don't we just obey? And we warned, like, if not, he might judge, which is what happened. And you can do, and encourage, encourage is to instill courage in someone. This word here for exhort is translated different ways in different translations of the Bible because it means so many things. It can mean to warn, it can mean to comfort, it can mean to encourage, it can mean to challenge. So if they started doing that with each other, can you imagine how different all of human history would be? <laughs> but they didn't. And then here you see, we're supposed to do that for each other. It's saying, church, don't be like Israel. But then the way you do it is you exhort one another. So you have to do this together. Do you know there's certain things in life you just can't do on your own? You're going to watch the Super Bowls, many of you today, and they're going to, Lord willing, score a touchdown. Hopefully there'll be at least one. Some of them will coordinate a dance, like choreography, with one another, anticipating this moment happening. But even if that doesn't happen, have you ever tried to high-five yourself? It's pretty lame, really, right? There's certain things in life, you try to do it by yourself, it's like, that just wasn't meant to be that way. Have you ever played tag by yourself? You're it, man! Now who do I go get? Marco Polo? Try that one. Frisbee? I brought a Frisbee here today. Have you ever tried to play Frisbee by yourself? Oh, wow. Doesn't work. Sorry. Didn't mean to hit you. I meant to hit him. Anyway. <laughs> See, I'm not even good at it because I play by myself. That's right. Water ski? Try to water ski by yourself. Like, they're just things you just can't do. The Bible says that you're not even supposed to live not just Christianity, humanity by yourself. Remember the beginning of the Bible? He created and it was good. He created and it was good. He created and it was good. Then it's not good for what? Man to be alone? Just man to be alone. Not Christians. You get to the New Testament, there are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. That means you can be a Christian by yourself, you cannot be an obedient Christian by yourself. How do you confess sin to one another if there's not a another? How do you carry the burdens of another if there's not another? This passage of scripture here does not just mean you need to have Christian friends, okay? We offer small groups. We want you in small groups. You're not in a small group. Go to the table on your way out. We'll help connect you in a small group. But you can be in a small group 
and not have what this is talking about. What this is talking about is an intimate relationship where somebody's going to fight for your heart. Who's fighting for your heart? Whose heart are you fighting for? Otherwise, you're not being an obedient Christian because it says here that we're to exhort one another every day so that our hearts don't become hearts of unbelief, that other people that you know, that you care about, aren't falling into unbelief because that comes from a hardened heart and it's rebellion. And the way you see it is usually when people are going through a time of testing, which some of us, that's just been the last couple of years. And then there's some real personal stuff. Don't let that happen. Why? Look at what the passage says, not what I'm saying. The passage says because of the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin is very deceptive. Uh, if you read the Bible as a whole, we don't have time to dive into it. Read James chapter 1, verse 14. It talks about how we get pulled into sin, and it basically uses an illustration that's kind of like trapping an animal or catching a fish. We see something, it looks good to us, then we take the bait. It's false advertising, which you'll be exposed to during the Super Bowl today, by the way. That diet pill? It doesn't work, just so you know. Save yourself some money. You're not going to lose 100 pounds taking a pill, stop eating so many calories, exercise. There's the answer. Bonus material, by the way. It's lying. And that's what sin does, is it lies to us. That's what this passage is saying to us, that sin is deceptive. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And just, I mentioned the beginning of the Bible. Remember when sin enters the world? I love how different the perspective is of the woman than of the man. At least Eve, when she sins, acknowledges, I've been deceived. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 13, she says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She takes responsibility, talks about the cause. Do you know what the guy does? This woman, you gave me. Your fault, God, not taking responsibility. She did it. You know what happens next? The Bible says they get kicked out of the garden. God guards the garden with an angel that has a sword of fire. They're not going back in. But have you ever wondered to yourself, husbands, what was that first night like after that situation? <laughs> yeah, probably not good. It's not in the Bible, but I imagine what happened is there's, it's kind of romantic. They're sitting in the wilderness underneath the star. Hey, baby, you want to cuddle? Are you kidding me? You just threw me under the bus to God. I don't think it was a good night for Adam because he lied. And they were both deceived because sin's deceptive. And the problem with being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. And that's why you need other people. In my study this week, I jotted down just some signs, some symptoms that we see throughout Scripture of people who are deceived. Here's a few. This is not an exhaustive list. You think you know better than God? You're deceived. Uh, there's an example of this. Uh, Peter is in a situation where Jesus says to him, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then what Jesus says back is so awesome. He says, you didn't, that wasn't revealed to you by man. You knew that because the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. That was revealed from heaven. Remember what our passage says, if the Spirit speaks. So he's just heard from God. One minute later, God's revealing to him more where Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, I'm gonna die. And Peter says, no, not you. He knows better than God. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Hmm. So this battle with sins, a moment by moment thing or second by second thing. <laughs> if you think you know better than God, uh, you're in company of Peter as a bad example in that passage. Um, you think you're the exception. Oh, don't forsake assembling together and uh, you need each other and you're supposed to carry each other's burdens or confess no one needs to know this sin, just me and God and just, you're deceived. Self-righteous. That means you're deceived. Self-righteous people oftentimes don't know they're self-righteous. They're the people that focus on things they're really good at with huge blind spots and usually nobody in their life that loves them enough to tell them. Jesus does this with the Pharisees. Statements like this, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. It's not that he hates the Pharisees, he loves them. He says, you're hypocrites. For you tithe. It doesn't mean Jesus is against tithing. Look what he says next. You tithe on the smallest stuff, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law and justice and mercy and faithfulness. These, you should have tithed, but you don't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. You've got a blind spot, and that's made you self-righteous. Some of you feel hopeless. In a room this size, there are at least a few, a handful of people statistically that are contemplating taking their own life. That's hopelessness. God is a God of hope. You're not hopeless. As long as you're breathing, there's still a chance for you. And God's got a plan for you. And if you feel hopeless, we would love to walk with you through that situation in your life. You've got to let us know, though. That's a lie. You're not hopeless. You think you're trapped in sin? There's no condemnation if those are in Christ. Jesus offers freedom. You're living in shame or guilt. We see that in the garden. And then Jesus covers their shame and guilt and tells them of a promise to restore the relationship 
Don't let shame and guilt control your life. You're tempted to hide or deny. That's a sign that you're in deception. You're a people pleaser. You're deceived. There's idols everywhere. We could pick money, sex, power, all kinds of things. If you're following one of those idols and think it's going to bring you pleasure, you've been deceived. Lies are directing your life. God doesn't love you. You're not good enough. Stuff that guy says from up front applies to most people, but not you. Lies. You're deceived. You need other people. As we dig more and more into the book of Hebrews, we're going to get to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about spurring one another on to love and good deeds and tells us we have to have each other, especially as the day, it says, draws near. Do you know what the day is? It's the day of judgment. When Jesus returns, how do we know if that's going to happen? I'm not going to, I don't know the day. No one knows the day or the hour. It sure seems like, whether it's wars or rumors of wars, or whether it's the difficulty, or whether it's the sin situation in our world, that we're getting a whole lot closer to Jesus coming back. Here's what Jesus says about it, and I'll leave you with this today. Matthew chapter 24, in verse 11, Jesus, describing the end times, says this, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, do you think lawlessness has increased? The love of many, so he's talking about believers here, will grow cold. And then you can read Timothy where he says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, they'll defy their parents, they're disobedient, they think they know better than God. They're deceived. There's a lot of deceived people is what it's saying. So we need each other. God's given us each other. We're responsible for each other. He's given us his word. Remind each other of the truth. Father, we come before you today thankful for your gifts, thankful for your truth, thankful for your love. But there are people, it has to be true based on what you say, that if most people will start with you but not finish, there's people here that are thinking of quitting. Will you fan the flame maybe just for one more day? Just keep them going for one more day and then give them more truth the next day and more truth the next day. But Father, will you get us through this race of life with you to where we actually point people, even in our failures, we point people to you? God, if there's people here that are believing things that aren't true, will you bring that onto the light today? I pray that right now in this moment, you would confess to him. If you need to confess, maybe like Josiah, just say, we're not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to turn to you. I want to do that. Help me do that. Empower me to do that. And Father, I pray some of us in here would become encouragers to each other. I pray we'd invite each other to our small groups, that we would make disciples, that we would obey your word. Keep us pure. Let your word be a light into our feet. Thank you for giving us your truth. Speak your truth by your Holy Spirit in these next moments, in the hearts and lives, so that we wouldn't be hardened and listen less, that we'd listen more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.